Good to see everyone. Thank you for coming. So here's week two. Um, I think we're right on track to finish this, go through 110 or 150 or so. Um, and we left off, we're, we're in the middle of talking about the Church of Jerusalem. Back in that day, everything is of the city that it's in. So, um, you know, the church in Chicago would be the Church of Chicago. And uh, somebody's name that ends with of that city would typically be the bishop there, like kind of the lead pastor in the area. So anyway, so we're focusing on Jerusalem at the moment. Um, we, this is the last slide we went through. Uh, I don't want to go over it all again. That was just for you to kind of look at. And we also talked about the two parties, the two uh, flavors of people present in this church. Um, they got along. They were friends. They all loved Jesus, but they spoke different languages. Uh, the Hebrews speaking primarily Aramaic and uh, Hellenist, if you recall, Greek. And they would have had a working language, typically, of the other language, but not very good. And this leads to some conflict that you're all familiar with because Luke records it as well. And this isn't so much like intentional conflict. This is just a bubbling up of life. And you can think of it this way. Well, maybe I should just read this, but you guys probably know this, right? The Hellenists murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Uh, you, you guys um, would figure that a widow and an orphan, they're totally dependent on the communities around them. So this is typical language of daily distribution, caring for the poor broadly. And think about this, like put yourself in their shoes, right? Hebrews are from Palestine. They've lived there their whole life. They have strong connections. Go figure that their widows are taken care of. It's not because there's an intentional neglecting necessarily, but Hellenists aren't from the area. They're not part of these same connections. It takes a little bit more work to fit in, right? So best we can tell something like that happened, um, and uh, this led to the solution, and now we have deacons, uh, this language of serving tables. This is just idiomatic for serving, a, a deacon. Uh, they appoint seven deacons. Uh, they're all Greek names. I think we can suppose they're all Hellenists. The Hebrews are already fine. They already have their system in place. And so now Hellenists do too. So I wouldn't think of this. I, I, I think whenever you hear things like conflict and the murmuring and all that, you think it's intentional. We don't really know for sure. But the, when you think this through, it's probably just unintentional reality of having two different kinds of people speaking two different kinds of language in the same church. That's tough stuff. Obviously, tension remained between these two parties. Uh, it's just because they had different views of things. Language, you may, you may know this, maybe you speak two languages, but your language really influences how you see the world and how you just put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, Hellenists tended to, and this is the example I gave last week, 
It wasn't just Stephen, but Stephen's the most obvious example of taking a step further and seeing Jesus' coming as fulfilling the temple, for example. And how Stephen took that is it's not necessary anymore. And how the Hebrews took that was it's still necessary, it's just not the point. Just like a church building's necessary. I mean, we've got to meet somewhere, a church place. Some sort of place is necessary. We can't just go in our closet and worship together exactly, right? So there are some different takes on how to, how to deal with this. Um, and in the context of the day, Stephen's words were blasphemous. They were heretical. Uh, it's really, you can read, read the speech on your own. And by the way, he was one of the deacons. Um, and uh, because of this, now we're not, this isn't, this is what I think. It's kind of controversial, but not really. Uh, the Hellenists were targeted, but the Hebrews were left alone. You can see this to some extent in the narrative that follows. Um, ben Witherington argues otherwise. He, he says there's not enough evidence. Some evidence that the Hellenists were targeted, but the Hebrews were left alone. Um, notice that Stephen is executed, the Greek dude. Uh, Peter and John, well-known in the area, just arrested. And they're the leaders. Um, but maybe a better piece of evidence is this, and it's something that maybe connects with something you know. Before Paul became a Christian, Saul went up to Damascus during this time to go after the Hellenists. They were Hellenists in Antioch. He could have just targeted all these Hebrew Christians right there in Jerusalem. He was there in Jerusalem. And it makes no sense to leave Antioch's a long way away. So whatever the case is, that Hellenists seem to be targeted just a little bit more. And that should make sense to you. Um, they're a little bit more outsider. They sound a little different. Um, and they have radical views of the temple by now. So there you go. Fun stuff. Um, this is just life in the Church of Jerusalem. Now, that brings us to, and we're almost done talking about the Church in Jerusalem. Like, why don't we talk about it today still? Well, it obviously still exists, but in a different form. Um, it sort of fizzled out. And let's talk about why the Church of Jerusalem fizzled out. Uh, there's a few steps here. I skipped a few other steps just for the sake of time. But in the year 43 or 44, uh, Herod Agrippa starts persecuting uh, Hellenists. And this is also when James, John's brother, the disciple, is executed. In the 40s, things pick up quite a bit. Romans during this time are just in general growing more suspicious of especially the, the Hellenists. But also, they're growing suspicious that these Christ followers are not actually Jewish. The Jews don't seem to treat them like their own. And that's a, big, that's a big point to make because Romans only gave Jews exceptions during that day. So if your Jewish cult wasn't Jewish anymore, Romans would not protect you. You would have to, yeah, you'd be in trouble. Um, 
Now, by 62, this is jumping quite ahead, but this is one of the death nails. The 60s were really rough on the Church of Jerusalem. This is uh, James, the brother of Jesus. Like I mentioned, this is either a half-brother of Jesus or it's an older sibling brought in that Joseph had um, in a previous marriage. Uh, It could also be a cousin, but the the best reading here is this Jesus' brother like half-brother or maybe uh, an adopted. So James, the brother of Jesus, is killed in 62 AD. Notice that's very late. This is 30 years after the crucifixion. Uh, It's a a lot of controversy about that, but he ends up dying. And this is when a guy named Simon or Simeon takes over as bishop, as the lead pastor in, uh, in Jerusalem. Now, we know that Jesus, James as well, had a younger brother named Simeon. So a lot of historians think this is the next younger brother. That makes quite a bit of sense. We're not really sure. Um, You can sometimes render Simon as Simeon, but that would be a mistake. Somebody made a mistake maybe when they were copying. Or it's another Simon, we're not really sure, but that's the next leader. Not for long, because the Jewish rebellion, and I mentioned the temple's destruction in 70, was the final death nail to this uh, church, this very early Jerusalem church. I'm going to talk about why in detail later on. That's going to be next week. But just to put it really briefly, Jerusalem's destroyed, the temple's destroyed, um, and people left after the temple's destruction. Um, The Hebrews, the Hellenists were already gone evangelizing. The Hebrews ended up moving to a place called Pella right after the temple's destruction. It's not a safe place to be anymore, so they move on the other side of the Jordan. Say again. Oh, I thought I said somebody like amening me or something. First time with church history. Amen. Um, so, well, the, um, the, it's more complicated than that. And, and, and the complexity is basically this. When the temple was destroyed, the Jews asked their Jewish friends, the Christians, they're now called Christians by 70, They asked them, hey, can you help us defend the temple? The Romans are going to come and destroy us. And Christians did not help out in that war, at least for the most part. That is a permanent rift between Jews and Christ followers. It's like, you're not one of us. You're not a patriot. Christians are like, well, our Savior keeps saying to turn our swords into plowshares. And Peter tried to do something, and he stopped them. So they kind of took a more pacifistic approach to the temple's destruction, and that was a a rift that was never healed. You don't have to know much about history to know that from that point forward, Jews and Christians bickered, to put it really kindly. So there is a slow, it's a fizzling out, right? There's still Hellenists, there's still the leaders of Jerusalem, but they're elsewhere now, and it kind of gets morphed into this Hellenistic Judaism Christianity, and that's all we have now. So let's talk about this mission to reach the Gentiles. This is all over the book of, the, of Acts. You've probably read this before in your quiet time. This might be super familiar to you. So let's talk about this slow but sure going out from Jerusalem, preaching the gospel as they go. Uh, both Hebrews and Hellenists obviously start in Jerusalem. 
But after Stephen's great speech, the deacon's like one of the best speeches ever, right? Radical, but it was really powerful. This starts persecution, at least of Hellenists, and so they scatter from this point forward. Hellenists aren't sticking around in Jerusalem anymore. Hebrews are, but Hellenists are like, I'm not, I look too Greek, I better get out of here. Um, So they go to the surrounding towns, and in the process, Luke's always writing for a reason, right? And the main reason is watching the gospel go out, breaking down barriers on the way. Some of these are very familiar um, stories. Uh, Breaking down the barrier of Jew and Samaritan, that's huge. Uh, That's Philip established a church there. The point is the gospel's for everyone. It's not just for uh, God's people, the Jews. It's for the Samaritans as well. That would be, you know, blasphemy during that day. And also, and maybe more profound, breaking down the barrier between Jew and Roman and Jew and uh, African. Uh, That word Ethiopian, when it's used like that, it's not talking about a country. It's talking about somebody of a dark skin color south of Egypt. So the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, This is somebody who was dark skinned in Africa. Uh, Probably, we're not really sure, but maybe Cush, the kingdom of Cush. We're not really sure, but Ethiopian is a general word. Uh, So huge breaking down barriers as they go. Again, the point is the gospel's for everyone. Um, uh, I kind of wanted to cover this last week because the the thesis of Acts in a lot of ways is Pentecost and the Spirit's undoing of Babel so, so that everyone understands one another, each in their own language and culture and everything else. Well, you're seeing that unfold right now. And the next step, um, and this is the big step, is the city Antioch. Antioch was a a very large metropolis. It was one of the biggest cities, and it was the capital of that Syrian district as well. So this is like, yeah, it made its way to New York sort of thing. And this becomes a sending church And this is also the place where the gospel was first preached to large crowds of Gentiles. Not just one-on-one with a eunuch or uh, with Cornelius. This is the first time that it's preached to large crowds of people with non-Jewish backgrounds. Imagine being the first person to preach the gospel in a way no one's had to preach before. You're not used to having to give all the background, but now you do. (laughs) What's this Messiah thing? What does that even mean? Like, you you miss everything, right? Why do we even need this? Oh, yeah, Genesis 3. Shoot. So that's a a pretty big moment when you think about it. Lots of stuff happens in Antioch. As you can figure, somebody with a Jewish background, which is all Christian leadership and basically every Christian during the day, um... They would have heard that and went, oh, sounds kind of culty. I don't know if that, like, can you do that? Can you expect a Gentile to get the gospel in just like one sermon? So they send uh, Barnabas. And uh, this is also the place in this same context that these Jewish Christians are called 
well, I just said it, Christian. That's where the word's coined. It's in that city. Um, And it's just hard not to say Christian, right? So it makes it kind of easier from now on. And then finally, this is where Paul, uh, well, this is Paul's sending church. So a lot of the rest of Christian history, Antioch is one of the major centers. Uh, It has a lot of important uh, church leaders in history, theologians in history, and it's one of the first churches as well. It takes over, kind of, as the main church after Jerusalem fizzles. Now, not to say that Hebrews aren't part of this. We know that Peter and John visited. James never is mentioned. James seems to be the administrator of the Jerusalem church. Um, He's in charge at Jerusalem. But uh, Peter and John come up. They work alongside. Um, And, yeah, I've already said that. So, anyway, uh, this is the gospel going out in uncomfortable places, uh, in uncomfortable times. And remember that while in Jerusalem, these Christ followers, there was a stigma attached to them with the Jewish leadership elsewhere. They were just considered Jews. So they had no problem in Antioch for the most part. People didn't really get the difference. Like, yeah, we all believe in the Messiah. Good for you. Right? They just didn't get the difference yet. And it's from here that the gospel then goes southward and northward. And when I say that, I mean uh, church planting. And you, you can actually see the progress pretty equally, actually. Now, you probably don't know much about, because you know there's not much written on it, how, how it went down in Egypt and even more interestingly in Nubia. And of many other like regions there basically follow the Red Sea and Christianity was really successful in that region as the kingdom of Kush. And um, the, the, the issue is that you don't know the language. They're not Greek speakers. They're, they don't even speak Coptic there. And there's less people that know the language. And so it's kind of forgotten. But it went down southward there. Um, just basic Christianity, just like you know it. Different vocabulary, totally different language. And meanwhile, it went up northward, and this is uh, even actually following Paul's journey. Paul wasn't the only one, but um, northward through Syria and Asia Minor and Greece and everything else. So fun stuff. By the way, if you want to learn more, there's no, I mean, this is like maybe like an it's like an undergraduate, upper undergraduate level book. If you want to learn more about like Christianity in these African regions, uh, Vince is awesome. And this is the, the only book on the subject that is even remotely helpful. It's, uh, hopefully in 10 years, all their stuff is just translated and it's just common knowledge. But right now, it's something that you know, people just aren't aware. They're like, well, Christianity is European. It went with the Roman Empire, and that's not true. I was taught that, but it's just not true. Uh, in fact, slave traders, uh, European slave traders, fast forward a millennia, uh, knocking on the door of what was before Kush, were like, hey, um, we're Christians and we're going to enslave you. And they're like, wait, we're Christians too. Do you follow Nicaea? Are you Nicaean? Yep. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, they were, they've for 1,000 years. They're just hanging out, solid Christians. It's like, whoa, why wasn't I taught that? 
Um, well, because language is hard and you really can only know what you can read or what people tell you. And uh, well, Vince knows the language, he's African, but um, not many people do. So that's cool, let's move on because that's gonna come up a little bit later. Let's move on and talk, we're still talking about this outward mission. These are mostly Hellenistic uh, Christian influences. Paul's the quintessential one. Uh, you know the story. Uh, converted sometime, depends who you ask, sometime between 31 and 36. If the resurrection happened in 30, maybe it could be 31, but obviously... I. I we don't really know exactly when uh, the death and resurrection, what year that was, and that will dictate your year here. Paul, sometime after becoming a Christian, uh, like he's smart, right? So what he's probably doing after being a Christian, notice how, well, that's a lot of time, potentially like 11 years or so. Paul's not doing anything. He encounters Jesus. He is doing something. He's reading. He encounters Jesus. Jesus is like, hey, I'm Yahweh. He's like, no way. Um, and, yeah, it was awful. And if, if I'm Paul, at least, I'm going to be like, okay, let's reread this Old Testament, see what I'm missing. And so that's a, that's a decade, potentially, of just intense study. Uh, don't let anyone tell you that study doesn't matter. Uh, goes to Antioch. Uh, that would make sense. If you're a Christian, you don't go to Jerusalem. You're not going to be welcome there as a Greek speaker, um, but Antioch was going to be more welcoming. He goes there. You know maybe the story with Barnabas. Barnabas was crazy enough to actually believe him. I wouldn't have. Like, what did he have to gain? Like, who in the world goes from, like, I got it all. I'm going to be high priest one day, and I'm a Christian. Like, nobody does that. Um, so anyway, and then, and then we know uh, he... Uh, did quite a bit. Uh, he's not the only missionary, but we just know the most about him. Because when you write a lot, people remember you later. But if you don't write, then we just don't know. And so he gets more credit, you know, than maybe he needs to. We know his, uh, his, his tendency of going to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. That's just practical. There's also a theological reason for this. Um, so he'd go to the synagogue, preach the gospel, it often wouldn't go well. Uh, then you'd preach the gospel to Gentiles in town, and that often wouldn't go well either. Reread the stories, and you'll figure out, like, hey, Paul had some hard days. He was stoned a couple times. I've, I still haven't been from preaching the gospel. Um, so that, that was his method, and it made quite a bit of sense in that time as well. And um, synagogues would often just have, like if there was an elder in town from another synagogue, they would have them teach for that week. Oh, the great Paul's in town. Isn't he on his way to like high up? And let's have him in. And, and it, you know, word's not out about the difference between Christ's followers and Jews still. Not, not really at all until the 50s and 60s does it get clearly distinguished. So Paul used that to his advantage. Hey, I'll preach to you, and what I preach is Jesus. It's kind of effective. And uh, this is a little bit of an aside. We don't know exactly when all this started. I had some great questions last week about development of the liturgy and all that. Uh, long story short, we don't know. Um, 
Uh, there's a lot of diversity about where traditions came from and who started what and what's the oldest. Well, the oldest is probably the synagogue tradition. There you go. That's the oldest liturgy. Uh, but what we can know with a good degree of certainty is sometime around this Hellenistic outward mission, it became necessary to, one, bring in catechism into the church. Catechism is teaching, like, you know, about the faith, basic teaching about the faith. There's a bunch of Gentiles in your church, maybe not tons, but there's some for the first time. Now you need a catechism. You might not need it if everyone has a solid Jewish background, but that's not the case anymore. And then the second thing that happens is that the Sunday service, we're not exactly sure what date, but probably sometime around now, uh, became a two-part service. I think I mentioned this briefly last week, where it was everyone's invited to the first part, which was sometimes called the service of the word. It was sometimes just, you know, some people called it synagogue. And then the second part is the, the Eucharist, the celebration Thanksgiving meal. And that part, only Christians are invited. Um, if you've ever, like, heard how churches do this, it's kind of similar today. The difference is that we don't send non-Christians out of the room anymore. We just generally say, like, this is for Christians. This is a meal for Christians. So we have actually a similar functionality today, but it was much more um, stark back then. Now, Justin Martyr, this is the source. You can read the first apology if you want to. Uh, he's writing in the 100s, the mid-100s. But he's reflecting something, and he's intentionally reflecting something that goes back much earlier. So something like this starts now, and it develops even more later on. Justin was martyr, but that's not his last name, and no martyrs are not named after Justin. But that would be cool. So there you have it. Um, Lots of fun developments. Uh, Some of it is really hard to be certain about. And so I'm just trying to be clear about what I can be and then just give you some ambiguity where we just don't know. So this brings us to about the year 50 and the Jerusalem Council, another story in the Bible. And this is something that also hits the historical record. And it can be a story that's kind of a confusing one in some ways, like what's going on here. But the question basically is this. There's now Gentiles, non-Jews, excuse me. There's now non-Jews coming into the Christian church. So the question becomes, do they have to follow the law of Moses? How does, how does the law of Moses relate to the law of Christ? Right? How does this work exactly? It's a tough question when you think about it. There's still not really a lot of, you, you know, a universal answer to this today, exactly about the relationship. It's tough, right? Like, we kind of follow the Ten Commandments, but also those are given to Israel, and it's fulfilled in Christ. In fact, Paul even says it doesn't continue anymore. But the principles do. Wait, what? How does that work? Right, so they're, they're struggling with similar questions that we struggle with today, maybe just not as explicitly. Um, and this is mostly uh, involving Paul and Hellenists, on the one hand, and then James and Jerusalem leadership on the other. Jerusalem is still a thriving church right now. 
and they're trying to get on the same page. This is a council. It's an ecumenical, everyone's involved, let's get on the same page. So the first thing is James, Peter, John accept Paul's mission. That's not surprising. They're, they're friends. Like, yes, what Paul is doing with the Greeks, with the Gentiles, that is good and healthy and the gospel needs to go out. Now, they, they need to say this because the perception at the time was you guys aren't on the same page. Paul's evangelizing. You guys are just staying home. Well, no, but we're evangelizing the temple and the synagogues here. By the way, there's about, there's about 150 synagogues in Jerusalem at the time. We often don't realize that it's not just temple. There's tons, and, and they were hanging out in this context. So one, though, is more obvious outward evangelism, and another one's more inward evangelism, but they're both doing the same thing. And so here's the next response, and I'll read it in full in the next point. But the conclusion was, this is worded weird, Christians don't need to accept at least most of the Old Testament law. They don't need to keep most of it, including, and here's the issue, the major issue, circumcision. I get it, public baths back then. This was a deal back then. Today it wouldn't be because they're like, how do you, how do you know? Who cares, right? Who would ever know? But back then this was a really big deal. It's a sign of God separating his people from the rest of the world. And by default, somebody like Paul's like, well, I already was. This is just what I was born with. Like, this is how I always thought of it and worshipped. But then Paul's starting to realize over the course of his ministry, well, wait, what about if a Gentile, like somebody like Timothy, becomes a Christ follower? Does he now have to circumcise himself? How does that work? So here was their conclusion um, and this is where it's kind of confusing. Why, why are all these categories uh, thrown in the same pile? Right? When you read through what they say is uh, you need to abstain from, it's a little bit weird to our modern eyes. They say, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And now they're listing out uh, pagan temple sacrifice culture. This is all stuff associated with uh, the, the Roman temple, right? Abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what's been strangled, and let's just throw in sexual immorality. Well, that was a big part of the event, right? So all these things are keep away from the image that you're participating in this. Because if you're doing a lot of these things, it means you're there during it. That's how it works, right? Now, later on, they would separate the meat out from the activity. But in the region of Palestine, typically the whole, everything was together. If you're buying the meat, it means you're at the event. Later on, that's not the case. And some of you remember, wait, Paul changes his mind about this later on. Yeah, he either does, or it's a totally different circumstance. There's some different views on this. It's not exactly sure. But this is Jerusalem talking. And in the context of Jerusalem, do you really want to be associated with these festivities? Well, they thought no. It's kind of like if you're going to be a missionary to Alabama, you'd be a, be a fool 
if you're just like drinking, you know, alcohol everywhere, hang out, hey, let's hang out, let's get a beer. Like everyone's going to assume in many regions that you're not a Christian because of the perception of alcohol in many, if not most counties, right? And so this is Jerusalem, assuming Jerusalem's the context, and here it's associated, so don't do it elsewhere. So it's a fascinating uh, decision. They, they, they leave, they're like, okay, circumcision, not required, but maybe we shouldn't be going to those uh, Roman festivities. Well, they're not there anyway. Makes sense? All right. Did this end the disagreement? No. But there, you, you, can, you can see the communication through time, and there's, there's a lot of back and forth. And this was a good temporary solution to this conundrum. Uh, here's some of the, um, this is actually Paul's missionary journey. Some of these dates are probably wrong, but I couldn't find anything. And, and you know, we're not always sure. But here's the Paul going out planting churches. Remember, there's many more, some that we're aware of from the Bible, some we're aware of from history, some we just don't know. Gospel's also going down here. Paul just didn't go that way. So that just gives you an idea if you're interested. And finally, hard transition. And what I mean is a quick transition, not like necessarily um, hard to hear. Some of this becomes hard to hear when we get to Nero. Um, First conflicts with the Romans. Now, up until this time, for the most part, Christians and Jews have been confused. They're thrown into the same camp. Not a great analogy today. I'm not sure exactly what analogy you'd want to come up with. The reason for this is simply that it's a new movement, right? Well, that's going to slowly change. So here's a quick review. Christians were protected by Roman law as long as the Romans thought they were Jewish. The Jews all along are saying they're not one of us, but the Romans are like, you guys are just, you know, you're just being divisive, calm down, talking to the Christians and the, and the Jewish people. And remember, in many regions, they're hanging out together still, right? And we know that. And we're going to see in the first conflict, it implies they're all hanging out together, even if it leads to some, div- some division. Now, eventually, when it became clear that these Christ followers are not the same as the Jews, that's when some persecution starts. It's not consistent, and it tends to be limited to crazy, narcissistic emperors. Right? This isn't necessarily, like, it's not the law to persecute Christians. It's not as common as you think. But we start to see more of this as time goes on. Now, no, no real, uh, I guess I shouldn't say that. There was, I guess you could call, yeah, this was persecution, come to think of it. But not like death persecution yet. During the time of Emperor Claudius. This is the first reference we have I think it's very likely to be a reference we have of an emperor, um, you know, dealing with this whole Jesus movement. And what we know, and this is uh, the city of Rome, what we know is that the Jews there, for a time, were kicked out of the city. All of them. 
because of debates about Christus that's misspelled, but it's like one of the first references we have. So, and it's close enough. Like, what else is it about? What else looks like Christ, right? Um, and what it seems like when you put all the pieces together, it's really fascinating that there are riots going on in the city. People got, were really serious about religion back then. And apparently it's because Christians were going into synagogues, evangelizing, which was okay for a while. But think about it. You get somebody who's just a little bit, goes a little bit too far, maybe isn't likable as much as the last person, and it just erupts. And so all the Jews are kicked out because of Jesus. Yeah, well, the Christians are included in this. You can see this. They're part of the kicking out. And this is a couple decades after uh, the crucifixion. So there you have it. And this shouldn't be that surprising because even during this time, the Hebrew Christians are hanging out in the synagogues of Jerusalem. So I guess it shouldn't be that surprising they're hanging out in the synagogues in Rome with a very vague reference. Uh, I think that's from Tacitus, the historian. So it's pretty recent, and that's, um, I think that's likely to be the case. Now, this is where it gets bad. And this is where Peter and Paul, when Peter and Paul were likely killed, because they were in Rome at the time. So let's move on to the... <laughs> You say Nero, and you know this guy's a bad guy because it's a bad guy, and it's a bad name in our culture, right? You it just is. It's always a bad guy. Well, this is Nero. Um, at first, he was a really good emperor. He was competent, um, very well respected, and liked, and all that. We're not exactly sure what happened. Some thought that his uh, narcissism got in the way. If you ever met a narcissist, you know, it can go downhill quick. Some historians think that he got syphilis. He did kind of like sleeping around, and that typically is the end result. Um, CF uh, Nietzsche. Um, okay, bad, bad joke. Um, but we're not really sure what happened. Either one of those, could, it could be both. But here's what happened, and this is where it got really bad. So year 64 AD, the 60s were a tough time for Christians. 70s weren't as bad. Uh, in 64, a fire broke out, and this took out, it was 10 of the 14 sections of the city. This is massive. And the word on the street was that Nero, by now, he already had a reputation for being a crazy person or for being really self-centered. The rumor was that he wanted to rebuild the city of Rome in his own likeness, in his own glory. And so he started the fire. And that's where the song comes from, actually. It was just later, Ryan started the fire. It was actually Nero. <laughs> I'm vindicated now. Um, <laughs> now that's a, that's a pretty good myth. Like that, that it kind of makes sense, but not really. What emperor's actually burning down the most glorious city? It, it doesn't really make that much sense. So he actually starts a counter rumor and his is a lot better. He starts it. Well, guess what y'all? The four sections of the city untouched are populated mostly by Jews and Christians, Right? Jews are protected, though. 
So he picks on the Christians. There you have it. So he starts this rumor. It gets people really angry at Christians. This is, you know, it's the it's social media. It's, it just takes a little longer back then to travel. Um, so he blamed Christians. This is a much, this, this is later, but he blamed them for, quote, abominations. This is for not believing in the Roman gods, likely. Uh, it might reference some other things, but we'll wait for that next week. And also, our hatred of humankind, which is fascinating, right? Now, this doesn't quite make sense, but remember, this is uh, kind of, you know, your social media polemical posts, like those, those Christians who hate us all just try to burn down our city. It caught on. And uh, it was not, this wasn't a universal persecution. People in Ionia, Asia Minor, they're not affected. People in Jerusalem um, are going through other stuff pretty soon, but they're not affected by this. Just in the city of Rome, and there were three different ways that were his favorite ways of killing Christians. Um, the most popular way was in the Colosseum. So you'd put like, this is, they didn't just do this with Christians. This is anyone you don't like. They would put furs on you and then set hungry, hungry dogs or cats or whatever they had against you. And the, the furs are trying to simulate like, you know, you're an, you're an animal. It apparently made them more feisty. Others were crucified naturally. Uh, the tradition is that I think is reasonable as Peter was crucified upside down during this time period. And that makes sense because Peter, you know, hothead. Um, uh, you know, if Jesus is going to be crucified the normal way, it's got to be harder on me. And then others, this is the way he treated Christians in his garden. Um, they were put on a pole and covered in pitch, and then they would light up his garden at night. It's really nasty. Now, this is not normal behavior. Nero was um, off-kilter. Rome thought so. A lot of Christians get really defensive. Like, see, we're sober. Well, yeah, but this is a normal way, actually, of um, a crazy leader treating people. But it's not a normal way for an emperor to treat people. So it was kind of like more, wow, not so much Christians are bad. It was more, wow, Nero's crazy. You maybe know that there's a short civil war after his death. It was, he, he just left a lot of destruction. But yeah, there's records of him wanting to read in the garden, so he would light Christians up to help him read in the garden. That's uh, one sign of narcissism, I suspect. Uh, so dark stuff, I realize that, oh, sorry, it's uh, cutting off a little bit weird. That's probably, probably should have... Um, uh, made sure that's correct, but it's close enough. So the last thing we're going to discuss, I might not even finish it just to leave more Q&A time. There's some difficult stuff, but we're also towards the end of where I need to be for today. And this is the Jewish war. It's called different things. Uh, the Jewish rebellions, what I called it before, and right smack dab in the middle is when the temple was destroyed. And so, yeah, we, we may as well. Let's go ahead and end here. Um, so first, remember the zealot context. So this is going back to last week. And the air everyone's breathing, including Peter and the disciples, 
is one of military uprisings, military revolt, that the Messiah was going to set us free from Rome. Remember that context, because eventually Rome did enough nasty things towards the Jews during that day that they, they rebelled. They had a Messiah that was the Messiah they wanted, and they won. For the first half of this, they did really well. They kicked Rome out of Jerusalem, and so Rome had to send back armies afterwards and retake it. So don't forget that context. Uh, when they came back, they sieged Jerusalem, and uh, yeah, yeah, the city. And uh, yeah, General Titus is in charge. This isn't the same Titus in the Bible. And they eventually won. And uh, this is where it gets a little bit hazy in the Roman historical record. We're not exactly sure what happened, but I I can pretty well guess. Romans won. They sieged the city, almost destroyed Jerusalem. It was, in other words, it was um, not very livable in most places. And they did destroy the temple. And that, that's a big deal because Rome was always like kind of antsy around Jerusalem. Like the Jewish people had a reputation to Rome of being difficult to manage. So destroying the temple is really setting a pretty, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a century changing event. In fact, this is millennia changing, but at the time it, it was just a big deal. So Josephus says this. Josephus was a Jewish historian who really liked to suck up to Rome. So he tends to make things look less bad. Every time he talks about Rome, he makes them out to be the victors. It's like, you know your friends today, whenever they talk about certain politicians, they're just like light up a little bit, right? You know, well, that was Josephus. As everyone, we all do that to some extent, right? So what Josephus said is that he wanted to save the temple as a last gesture, Titus did. But he was given no, there there was just no way because there was a counterattack and he had no choice. He just had to destroy the temple. He didn't want to, but he had to. That doesn't sound likely, but it's possible. Um, And then another account, which tends to make sense of a general who has aspirations um, to do this is he wanted to just stop all this nonsense. He wanted to crush uh, Judaism, especially. Christianity wasn't really associated with the temple, but the account also mentions Christianity here as well. So it's kind of, you know, vengeance, right? You guys start this civil war, we're going to crush you. So this was a really, really tough time. We're not sure how many people died. Um, Josephus reports upwards of a million, but he does like to exaggerate. Tens of thousands of people likely died. Probably, you know, probably that's rounding a little down. Uh, There's a lot of art and depictions of this, but it was it was rough. Oh, there's there's Titus, uh, art depicting him. Rushing in. So you can't see all the nuance in the painting. I'm sorry. Uh, This is a major moment. And Christianity and Judaism is no longer the same from this point forward. 70 AD is an easy number to remember. So here's the implications. 
uh, it might not seem that important to you, but Peter, Paul, James, the brother of Jesus, like Jerusalem is their home. And now it's gone and it's never going to be the same. They do move out after this. The Hebrews move away to Pella. And so it's just, it's a loss of home. It's a loss of all your connections and community. I mean, just imagine all your stuff just being gone because of a civil war. That's a big deal. Uh, This is also why the Hellenistic brand of Christianity tends to take over. Uh, Because just naturally speaking, the Jerusalem church just sort of comes to a halt because of this. They all move away. They sort of uh, die out, right? They're, they're not in the same outward evangelistic mentality. Um, so that's why, that's why, you know, you're like, oh yeah, I kind of empathize a lot of you, not all of you, with the Greek-speaking side of things. Some of you empathize with the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking side of things, but we're all one family. But this is why the Hellenistic Christians kind of take over. On the Jewish end of things, by the way, uh, this is when the Pharisees take over as well. The Sadducees were in power, money-wise, but the temple's gone. Their source of revenue's gone. Sadducees, right, Pharisees, like you maybe know some of, like this is the time period where Pharisees had the most power, and they just wrote a lot, made up all kinds of, there's all kinds of great theology coming out uh, in that context. Uh, And then probably most importantly for our Purposes in here, there's a permanent rift now between Jews and Jewish Christians. There's a permanent rift. And I mentioned that briefly. Uh, It's complicated, but a lot of it came down to why wouldn't you help defend your city? Right? You just let the you you let X country take us over without lifting up a fist. And so it's sort of yeah, again, this is where a lot of the lingo of Christians being unpatriotic and weak and, um, well, similar kinds of language I won't really say in here. That, that's when that sort of rumor started. See, the Christians, they're, they're weak. They're silly. And they, they're not patriots, not either for Rome or for Israel. Uh, it's it's. You know, it's false, it's not true, but you can understand why that would happen, right? Oh, and I already mentioned Pharisees rise to power on the Jewish end of things. Worlds are quite a bit different there, and this also did help propagate the gospel outward. It's why it started thriving more in Asia Minor, later on in Italy, And then also in Egypt and um, all the way through North Africa, the Numidians, like it thrived everywhere but Jerusalem for the next, you know, half a century. And there there is going to be a revival of the church in Jerusalem, but it's going to be a Hellenistic version. So there you have it. Uh, Yeah, it's a little bit early, but that's okay. Um, So let's just go ahead and stop here. Some difficult subject matter. Next week is going to be a lot of the um, fun stuff with the apostolic father, stuff that's outside of the Bible you've maybe never heard of. Uh, We're we're going through time, and we're basically at 70 right now. 
Um, we, we covered a lot of the hard stuff today. There's going to be some hard stuff next week as well, but it's also a lot of stuff you, maybe you've just never heard of. So anyway, let's pause and do Q&A. So if you guys have any questions at all, uh, let me know now. Yeah. Steve. Yeah, well, the same reason every culture, so to answer your second question, the same reason every culture you depict history with people looking like you, you go to Japan, their Jesus looks Japanese, right? Um, that's just how, how humans with limited minds think. I don't know. I don't think it's necessary, but it seems to be pretty standard just to depict things as if it is you. So yeah, this is all obviously later artwork. So thanks for reminding me to mention that. So yeah, that was just typical. And then as far as the ethnicities in the church, early on, the only ones we really know about, they're going to have Jewish backgrounds. But then there's points of contacts with places like Africa, Ethiopia, Ethiopia more specifically, which again, they're talking about the region south of Egypt and Greek culture. Um, so broadly speaking, there's two, two ways you can kind of divide it out. And that's like, you know, Jewish Christians that are going to look kind of Roman with, you know, like a lightish, brownish, olivish, brownish, more brownish actually skin. But they're going to look relatively Roman. They're going to follow Roman practices. So we have those folks, like the Cornelius folks, but also Paul's going to fit this mold to some some extent. We don't know how people look, but it wasn't like us today where there's all kinds of variety of of ethnicities. There, like if you grew up in a certain spot, you can be pretty sure you had a certain um, uh, ethnicity, however you want to. Uh, call it. So there's the Roman, and then there would be um, what we don't know much about, what I don't know much about, is the African uh, descent. We know some of how uh, their nations converted slowly but surely. Most of that pops up, though, in the 400s, 300s at best. So I didn't bring it up now because it would be guessing. And typically when I start guessing, that's always what my students remember instead of like what I'm pretty sure. So I don't want to start guessing. Um, But yeah, Christians look different. But by by and large, early on, the Jewish background is the default. Um, And these other ethnicities are mentioned as a way of points of contact. And, And now it spreads here and now it spreads here. But they just don't tell us much about what's going on there. It's a great question. Old Testament writing corroborates with these events. Old Testament writing? Oh. I mean, Joel, like basically any of the prophets talk about um, the Spirit going out, like the, the new covenant, right? Uh, the Spirit b- being poured out on everyone. Often, but not always, it mentions 
uh, many nations, or kind of implying all nations. Um, definitely the male-female distinctions always brought up, like both male and female get the spirit. Um, slave and free get the spirit, and uh, often, though not all, like so in Joel, it mentions the many nations. And so it, w- it was the expectation uh, that something like this would happen. It was just not in the sense that the, the early Jews thought necessarily. Yeah, if you take that, take it that way. That um, early Christians didn't really take it that way. So I, but possibly, yeah, yeah. That 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 could maybe be something too. Yeah. Uh, this it's it's actually really significant to note some of these breaking down barriers. By the way, because again, back then that's a huge deal. You know, either you're a Roman or you're a barbarian, right? Like the Romans did this. Everyone back then did this. And Christians are like, nah. <laughs> it's pretty outstanding when you think about it. Uh, yes? You mentioned this two-part service that's introduced in the early church where the service of the word and the service of the meal. Was the service of the meal like a, like a full meal or was it the bread and cup that we have now? And if it was more of a meal, how did that transition to yeah, that's a really good question. And um, yeah, like in, a, in my church history class, we actually slowly developed that as kind of, but I'll, I'll do my best really quick. Um, so yeah, it was a full meal. Um, it was sometimes called the love feast. Um, it, was, it was celebratory. It was kind of like a party. People would bring their own wine and bread. Some of this I mentioned last week. So um, if you weren't here, you can get the answer now. But they would bring whatever they had, throw it in the same pile. And uh, Justin talks about this in a lot of detail. Um, when exactly does that turn into like a, you know, something simpler, I suppose? Uh, it's not entirely clear, but it seems like in the one to two hundreds, uh, some of that gets toned down. And the reason, uh, we'll talk about this next week, is because of the rumors of what's happening behind closed doors during the communion. Because no one's invited, and there's a lot of wine and bread involved, and Christians uh, were known to be very physically affectionate people between women and men, like everyone was seen as one in Christ. So the Romans, just given their own common sense, thought that there was really naughty stuff going on. And so Justin kind of tuned it down, and I suspect we don't, again this is this at this point is a little bit of guesswork, but uh, there's some toning down just to oh we're we're not doing that. Now over time, it got even more associated with uh, the bread being Jesus's physical body. It kind of always they they didn't know what's happening. They thought like yeah Jesus is there in the bread. How I have no idea, but. Jesus is there. But over time, a sort of reverence happened that if Jesus is in the bread, do you really want to have a party and maybe drop some bread and maybe, you know what I mean? So it became a little bit more uh, reverent in, in that way, and some of that dies off from that as well. But that's a complex question with not really simple answers, unfortunately. Uh, we're all kind of influenced by the Protestant 
debates about 500 years ago, and no one's talking about doing a full-blown meal then, right? So we just sort of assume, you know, what we've been doing. It is easier, too, and you can also understand why it toned down, even if maybe a lot of my students want to go back to, let's have a party, you know. It just seems like, hey, let's just be like the early church. But that's easier said than done. Yeah, like what are the disciples handing down to their disciples? Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, no, unfortunately, I, I'm not aware uh, of anything that reliable enough to mention. Most of the earliest sources that we have on Jerusalem, minus the ones I'm already using, and that's why there's like areas I just didn't like this question didn't cover. Most of them are much later. So there's Cyril of Jerusalem. Um, if this class went into the 200s, I would or 100s and 200s, I, I would bring him up. But he's reflecting something later after the rift already happened, and he doesn't know what's happening in Jerusalem before it was totally destroyed. <laughs> um, so no, we don't exactly know. Uh, I could only speculate. There's two hands at once. Um, so in the Old Testament, right, there's a lot of uh, revolts and fighting, and God allows this, right? And he allows the Hebrews to you know, take land from other people and such. But then in the New Testament, when there's people like the Romans, right, there isn't so much fighting revolution anymore. It's more now, you know, escape or, you know, love your enemies. If, was it indirect or direct? That is it like a sign of how victorious Jesus Christ was? In the sense that once he died, right, once the Messiah was here, and once he died, right, there was no longer really a need to resist so strongly all the powers and the authorities. Is that kind of, because uh, there's so much less fighting, right, than the Old Testament. Like the Christians uh, take up arms. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it gets pretty, pretty rough in some of these years. During this time, yeah, except for the Jewish rebellion. Yeah. But there's some really rough times, and then when... Rome Christianizes, they do some pretty rough things. So they're going into the 300s now, like 313. and So I, I don't think so, but it might give the allure of that, just covering this 100 years. Yeah, I, I could see why you, why you thought that. It's a good question. I wish we could live more consistently like Jesus, but it turns out Christians are still really good at bickering and coming up with their own divisions and... We like to, you know, make up things that separate us from other Christians just to act how special we are. We still do all the same things, unfortunately, but fortunately, we, our society is a little bit different today, so killing one another over that is now banned. I'm a fan of that. Uh, we're, we're, yeah, hand. It's a, Jews also catch any of that. Jews sometimes get it, but they have to be like outlaws given the protection of the law. Um, 
they have to be like naughty more. Christians got it much more during this time. So if you're talking about the Nero thing, it was pretty short-lived. And most persecutions, whenever they do come up, whenever you're reading about it, they're much shorter-lived than you think, even if they're really horrific. So from, and I'll, I'll bring this up next week, and it's one of the places of ending this, actually, but I'll just say it now because you asked. Um, from about now until 313 A.D., 313 is when the Edict of Toler, well, the Edict of Milan, technically, sometimes it's called the Edict of Toleration, and that's when Christians are free to be Christians. It is now a legal religion. So until 313, Christianity was kind of like how marijuana used to be in our culture, where it's like, it used to be, see, I used to love this analogy, because it's so useful, but now it's legal, so it's not a good analogy. But jaywalking doesn't do. So if you think about something being illegal, but really not that illegal, that was Christianity. Because there's so much of it. You can't control that plague, right? You can't. So what do you do if Christians are caught? So again, this is from the period of time we're talking now all the way to about 313. If Christians were told on and they didn't recant they would be put to death. But generally, people aren't telling on their neighbors that are Christian because they're likable people and you like your neighbors, even if they're kind of weird and cultish. right? So it did happen, but typically with bishops and important leaders or people that won debates, Christians that won debates with their opponents, and then sometimes their opponents would tell on them. And <laughs> that's, that's, come on, that's sore loser right there. That's what happened to Justin Martyr. He got told on. So it's, it's not as illegal as you think. Now, with that being said, I actually need to say one more thing. There were three periods of intense universal persecution, uh, mostly in the 200s. And, and that sometimes would last as much as a decade. And that's what we all remember. We remember the great persecution, uh, which is much later than now, and it's when it was like the law. Let's kill Christians. And it's like part of the law. Like if you're withholding, you're against the law. Like if you're uh, protecting Christians, you're, in trouble. you're, you're going to die too. So that was a really rough time. And that's typically what's depicted in whenever you see like Christians dying. Uh, other than that, persecution's regional, very quick, very temporary. And then it's back to business. Not that that's easy. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, yeah. So Roman citizens had special privilege and status, like Paul had, you know, was one. He was proud of it. He mentions it a couple times. I mean, that's something to be proud of because it means you're more protected. Um, most people are just people living in Syria or Palestine or Judea is what they would call it. Um, and they're just your typical regional folk, and they have no special connection, no pe special... A connection other than whatever the law provides for that district. So in this case, the Jews got a special law um, that, hey, you don't have to be conscripted, you don't have to join the army, but you do have to pay uh, 
pay X, Y, Z and make sure you at least respect the emperor even if you don't burn incense. Um, a citizen can get away with a little bit more, but as you know, Paul was a citizen and he's eventually killed. But the difference with Paul is, and I think this is really significant, other Christians that we have on record, they die pretty horrifically. Paul, I, uh, we're not 100% sure, but it's, it seems correct in every way to me that he was beheaded. And that's a good way to go. I know it looks terrible. It's not fun to watch, but you know, I, I don't know for sure, but I don't think you feel it. So that was probably because he was a citizen, but hey, you went too far, um, especially when you're in Nero's land in Rome. That's just, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, Paul. Paul took a really bad vacation in 64. These are jokes. These are like, Paul's got, guys. Paul, Paul is in God's presence right now. He's laughing. It's okay. It's over. But yeah, so that it's it, that, that's just kind of a general way to explain. Some of this is speculation. We don't really know. But a lot of my students don't realize that beheading is a good way to go. Like if somebody's beheaded, there's something going on there, and it generally means they didn't really want to kill the guy, or they didn't want him to suffer. Meanwhile, Peter, don't care about that guy, apparently. So, yes? Yeah, there's, there's, that's a really good question because I've noted that myself and I didn't, I don't have like a definitive, because it seems like there's a lot of things that could be taking place right there. One, it is getting closer to his hour. The book of John is pretty much most of it, the second half is all like the week of his crucifixion. So even though it doesn't seem like it's the end of the book, it's his time during that. And this is, oh, are you wondering, does Jesus not like the Greeks? Is, no, it wasn't Yeah, I mean, it connects with Luke and how, like, you know, the mission starting first to the Jews, and it, it connects with all that. What is John's precise point? I would want to look more into that. Because he, John, John's clever, and he's doing a lot. Of, there's always like 16, uh, like, you know, the Bible's an onion. There's lots of layers. So there are obvious layers we all have here. But there's something else going on that I would want to, there's several layers that I, I yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to look more into that. What exactly was the joke? Is this Jesus speaking in parables and just kind of being flippant just to tick everyone off? Because he does that too. And John likes to catch that <laughs> and be like, ha, ha, Jesus was obnoxious sometimes. <laughs> Is that that moment? Maybe, I don't, I don't think so. I think there's something else going on that's more interesting. So I'll let you know next week. Any other questions? I'm not a New Testament scholar. John is my favorite book, though. Is there any more examples of that in 
Rome? Like, do any more centurions or people of high honor in Rome? Oh, yeah. There, there's probably tons of sort of later traditions of that. The Gnostics like to make up stuff in the 200s. But, like, reliable? Not that I'm aware of, no. That's a great, great question. It'd be... Because Jesus could do that, you know. And maybe he was doing it, but they just didn't know. Yeah. Any other uh, questions? Lots of questions. Like, this is like the highlight. It's, you guys are asking so much. Good ones. Yeah. Um, sorry, I have a lot of questions. Um, no, that's okay, yeah. Yeah, there are several times where he was close to death, and towards the end, he seems to, it's still like the, the Nero situation, it's not out of control yet, so it may be, there, there's other things going on, and it, possibly he died from, we're not exactly sure the details of Paul's death. Um, the best guess is 64 with that whole thing that we just went over there. It, it would make sense, he was in, likely in Rome, um, but we, we really just don't know. I think there's several times where Paul just expected to die. I'm guessing after stoning, you're just like, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, I think I'm done for this time. Um, and then there was one time that he's writing, and he was getting in trouble. He knew he was going to go before the emperor or somebody directly tied to the emperor. That's what he's discussing there. Whether that was the final thing, we're not really sure, because it's possible there's a lot of silence before he's actually put to death. No, we we think he did, yeah. But ah, there you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's possible. This is it depends how you reconstruct that missionary journey. And there's so many different. There's just a lot of conflicting because back then people don't they don't write this way of hey it's April fourth, uh, you know the year. Uh, 60, the, uh, Dear Diary, like they just don't do this, so we're just sort of left with uh, how do you put it all together, and I'm not, I don't have a definitive answer because I don't know, and I don't think we can know that with certainty. Um, yeah. I should just make up stuff more. Would you guys appreciate that? I like to tell my students this a lot, like, <laughs> It's like really easy. You, you, like I'm just used to people making up stuff, but you're like, I don't know. I'm like, oh. <laughs> That's good. I wish it was, right? We need to have more historical fiction, like putting the dots together, and somebody needs to direct the movie. Oh, they did that, though, didn't they? The, yeah. All right, any final questions, y'all? Actually got done a little early. Oh yeah. Sorry, this isn't really New Testament, but I mean, just quick question: Israel today is that really the Israel from the Bible, or did they just associate like because they're you know Jewish? Yeah, it was re. Yeah, I'm not. That's not my area, but it was reestablished after World War Two. Yeah. Oh wow! Wow. 
Uh, let me pontificate about politics for you because I'm an expert. Now, I just, I, I, I'm not going to, I can't without, I, that's not my area, so I'd rather not speak to it. Is that right? Is that wrong? Yeah, that's a lot of world history is dealing with that right now. Uh, Yeah, I'm not going to answer. Yeah, I can't. It's just not my area. I don't, I get, my students will often ask me questions on politics, and it's like, I'm not the kind of person that reads a couple scholarly articles and then has a strong opinion about something. I think that's delusional. So if I don't know, if it's not my area, I just say I don't know. <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, thank you. It's good. Oh, wait. Yeah, well. Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, not really, because the ones that we know about are the ones that wrote a lot. So mostly Paul and James and Peter, and you know they each at least have one book, right? So there's other people doing things, um, and there is division. Yes, to answer your question, because we know Paul and you know. Writing to the Corinthians, there's a lot of like allegiances going on on with Apollo. Paul's clearly referencing something about how people think he's less capable than this other unknown person that we don't know. So that is happening. But other than that, I can't think of a reference. And Paul would have been pretty well respected because he was a big deal. Um, so other than that one reference, I can't really think of it. And it doesn't come up in Josephus or Tacitus that I'm aware of or other historians that I'm aware of. So, no, I don't think so. That'd be interesting to have that insight, though. All right, y'all, thank you. I'll see y'all next week, same time. Have a good day. Good night. Oh, this is good. Computers. Have you ever lived in the deep south? No, I was born in Texas, though. Yeah. Well, you know, that might be. Going back to the beer thing? Well, illustration.